Episode 1758 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined today by John Taylor, also of Fangraphs. Hello, John. Hello, Meg. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm I'm doing okay. I imagine I'm doing less well than you are, just by virtue of the fact that you are a you're a Boston Red Sox fan. I am, and well, I mean, I'm doing I'm doing okay in the grander sense of yay, they won, hooray! Deeply spoiled child gets another toy. <laughs> less so in the fact that I had I had forgotten because the Red Sox obviously they won the World Series in 2018, but that was a an oddly drama free run, with the exception of uh, the final game against the Yankees in the division series. And then that mm-hmm. excruciating ninth inning against the Astros during the LCS that Andrew Benintendi saved when Craig Kimbrell was melting down. And then before that, they hadn't been to the post. They hadn't won a World Series since 2013, and postseason appearances had been kind of intermittent and mostly mostly forgettable. So I'd forgotten what that anxiety was like. Of oh, it's a tie game in the ninth inning to determine whether or not my team moves on. Great. Right. This isn't bad for my heart at all. <laughs> also, I, I kind of recognize when I, when I asked, how are you doing? I'm asking the editor-in-chief of a baseball website in October, how are you doing? <laughs> and I should just expect the answer is, I don't have lungs anymore. I mean, I um, I have lungs. Um, the number of... Uh, Better like, said aw- sleep. I don't have Yeah, sleep. awake brain cells might be might be um more suspect at this particular moment. It's funny like you you know uh, and it's not as if you you have not also been busy uh in this in this last stretch. There's something nice about knowing very predictably when your busiest times of year are going to be. You know, it's like For being sure. an accountant during tax season. You you know you're going to be tired. You might have some um, preemptive trepidation about that. Uh, it, it's definitely stressful and a lot of work. But it's also, you know, I, I would submit to you that the playoffs are a lot more fun than taxes. I mean, I personally... I mean, I love taxes. I love filling out <laughs> forms. I love having to find forms. I love spending money so that more money can be taken from me. Right, right. But otherwise, but yes. I but I get what you're saying though, because like for me, I I generally, and this is now just something I've you know because I've been amazingly now in baseball media for quite a bit. So I've just gotten used yeah. to telling people in October, hey, you're not going to see or hear from me for like four straight weeks. Yeah. It's... And especially the first week of the season, I am literally right. not going to do anything else but watch baseball or the postseason rather. Yeah, it's it's just a predictable bit of of being really busy. It's in service of a time of year that lends itself to really cool and spectacular moments. And uh, it's a job that I think even when it reminds you that it is a job that we feel very lucky to get to do. So all in all, not a bad thing. Oh, no, uh, it's very I, fun. It's like it's like yeah. Christmas for three weeks straight. Or yeah. whatever your holiday of choice is. 
Right. It's like it's like a a, a happy high holiday, uh, and in that respect, also quite different from tax season. So so I'm doing well, and I'm I'm excited. We are recording this on Tuesday, mere moments before the White Sox and Astros game four kicks off. But I quite liked the rain delay that we got in that series because it meant that we we are now in day two of a three game day, and I I'd submit to you, John. Three game day better than four game day. I think it's a it's a superior day. I am not going to disagree with that. I think the problem with the four game day is you inevitably get two games overlapping. Where I mean, I mean, even yesterday with just a three game day, and granted, it was a little bit, yeah, yeah, and that was because the schedule was already set in advance and and they couldn't move anything. But assuming now that they you know have been able to rejigger things a little bit, you know, now we're going to get at the optimally at least maybe only an overlap of an inning or so, and then you can fully develop like. Last night with Red Sox Rays, because I obviously wanted to watch that to the very end, I met I missed the first four innings of Dodgers Giants because yeah. National League playoff baseball either takes two hours to play or seventeen. Right. <laughs> so but yeah, I, I, I like the three game day. I like the even spacing out. To me, it feels it, it almost fits the NFL model of the the one PM game, the four PM game, and then yeah. the primetime game. Yeah. And I think that works really well because the other thing is, and I feel almost sacrilegious saying this, but like four playoff games in one day is a lot of playoff baseball. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that because playoff games are just naturally higher stakes and we all get to have the the nice sort of collective experience. It's one of the few times that I think that that Twitter is nice. It's like we're all watching the same games. We're all reacting to the same stuff. You do get that sort of communal sense of baseball, which can be much more scattershot during the regular season when everyone's sort of off in their uh, respective camps. And so you want to engage with it. And even if you're not a fan of the teams playing, unless it's a a blowout, you you feel the stakes of that game. And so four is just, it's quite, it's a lot. It's a long time to have your adrenaline spiking. So I think that three is better. I I do better when I am able to concentrate on one thing. I am not as big a fan of the the multi screen experience as some of our contemporaries. So a three game day is a good day. That's that's nice, and it's good that you know you never wanna you never want a team swept out of the postseason. That's a bummer. No, so. no, you're you're always rooting. Well, it's funny because like media, you're either rooting for the best games ever played or a blowout that's over after the second inning so you can just start writing. But (laughs) and like I imagine, yeah, if you're a beat writer, you want these series over with as soon as possible. You don't want to be you don't want to be crisscrossing the country. You are tired. It's been a long season. You would just like to move on to one thing or the other. But yes, for us, for us, relatively speaking fans. Yeah, more baseball, more baseball, just better concentrated baseball. Right, more <laughs> um, more elegantly scheduled baseball. Yeah. Let's take a, a refined a refined approach to our broadcasting. So we will talk about the three games that are occurring today and sort of what's left in those series, all of which uh, have the potential to be elimination games. Uh, well, they are elimination games. Whether they do any eliminating remains to be seen. But before we do that, we should talk about your Boston Red oh, Sox. Oh, they're mine now. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, John Henry, I, I, cut the check, please. It, it seems it seems like, uh, you know, it is only right for fans of a team to get to claim them as theirs when things go well and renounce them when they go poorly. And that's, I think that's part of the fan that, contract. That's that the funny thing have. for me is like I spent so much of 2020 being like just that constant Mariah Carey. I don't know her about the Red Sox when they would when they spent <laughs> the entire season just slip sliding around in their own stupidity. But yeah. Well, because I and I don't know if this is the case with with other Red Sox fans and a brief peek at Twitter last night suggested that a lot of them have 
if not short memories, at least have a high tol or a high capacity for forgiveness because I kind of felt to myself after the Mookie Betts trade that it's like, why do I want to root for this team that very clearly doesn't care about the fan base that supports it? Because there's no, and yeah, you know, you can make a a million baseball related arguments under the sun as to why the Red Sox actually should have traded Mookie Betts and why they were smart. But I don't care. Those are all stupid. I don't believe them and I don't care. Like there's no, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not rehashing this trade. I'm going to, my blood pressure is going to spike, but Point being, <laughs> I had kind of figured that the Mookie Betts trade might, if not kill, at least seriously damage a lot of Red Sox fandom, at least for this short-term future, especially because yeah. it felt like this Red Sox team was at minimum like two or three years away from right. being the kind of consistent contender that wipes away all those bad feelings. And instead, you know, 2021, a year when I think, I don't I don't recall at this point if I ever even had a number in mind for what I thought the Red Sox would do this season when it came to preseason estimates. I figured they would be a, probably around a 500 team. That yeah. roster felt very 500 to me. And instead, they've gone full 2013 and just chaos crashed their way through the postseason. And that, I think, has done a lot for the fan base to kind of make the Mookie trade more palatable. I still think it was a very, very bad decision, regardless of what Alex Verdugo does and everyone else in that trade does for the rest of their careers. Sure. But at the same time, like I I do think... I mean, I'm, I'm coming to a point that's not exactly... It's a pretty obvious point, but winning winning solves a lot of problems. Yeah. And winning definitely makes things a lot easier as well. And it helps, too, that this Red Sox team, I don't know if I want to call them fun, because they're fun in the same way that, like, have you ever been behind the wheel of your car, tried to see how fast you could get it to go while still being in control of the vehicle? No, I'm I'm a nervous driver, so okay. I've never done that. But I, I can appreciate the experience yeah, that I, you're describing. I, I'm an aggressive <laughs> idiot behind, or used to be an aggressive idiot behind the wheel as a youth, and now I'm a bit better. But every now and then, you do get that feeling like, what is the fastest I could actually do in this thing while still feeling relatively safe? That's the Red Sox experience. There's a lot of moments where you're really worried that the car is just like all of a sudden you're going to lose steering wheel control and you're just going to like roll over 15 times in a row. But man, it feels pretty cool to be doing 100 miles an hour down the highway, just flying (laughs) past everybody else being like, so long, suckers. Yeah, it um, it's an interesting squad. We, you know, I don't know how to feel about them because on the one hand, them having done this makes our playoff odds look really smart. <laughs> so like that's always nice when you can be like ah, we we saw we saw a thing in the projections for this team that I mean we didn't do anything once again we do not monkey with the projections after no. they have spit themselves out. But Do you hear that Adam Wainwright? I really do think that he was just joking around He's, mostly. I'm sure he was. You got to you got to get him on an episode during the off season. Yeah, I would. We would love to talk to him, and we don't have to relitigate that again either. But I will say, gosh, he is good in the booth, man. He is just a real treat yes, to watch and, as a broadcaster. He and Adam Amin and AJ Pierzynski were just, and I, former fan grafter. How do you, how do you say a former fan grafter? Fan- I refer to them as erstwhile fan graphs writers, okay. just to be fancy. <laughs> the king of the nerds, Mike Petriello, made the point on Twitter <laughs> that it's like they're just having fun in the booth. And that's really yeah. truthfully beyond the ability to, you know, accurately describe what is happening on the field. Like, that's really all you need. It's just people who are enjoying what they're doing. Yeah, it's at least a good 75% of it. So yeah. he has been, I am sure that he would rather his his Cardinals still be playing. But I think the the upshot for the rest of us that they are not is that we get to enjoy him in the booth, which is quite nice. It's funny, you know, the, the Cardinals have this reputation for devil magic. And then, you know, we have the Giants and even your bullshit. 
But I don't think that we, as a as a narrative, don't tend to make enough of the the Red Sox and their chaos ball energy when it comes to the postseason because this is like I don't think that it is a meaningful trend. It is far from a a predictive trend. But gosh, do they do this a lot come October? <laughs> yeah, and like. This is the funny thing for me because I'm used to the Red Sox either doing this just cannonball run where they just, you know, they they set a land speed record en route to the World Series or they just like flop out in the division series in three or four games. Right. A la the, the two John Farrell trips. But yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, the only common denominator here uh, is Alex Cora. And I know that there's the, I don't know if you want to call it like a theory or whatever, but the idea that teams essentially reflect their manager's managerial style and their manager's personality. And I think that makes sense because the style and personality that Cora at least presents in in the decisions he makes and the way he runs the team is just pure on the hell with it. Let's it's it's real fire fest. Let's just do it and be legends energy all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and a a series marked by that exact energy, right? We had, you know, we didn't have a, a chance to podcast after the game that that your team won in extras the day before, but you know, when when a crucial moment involves a strange deflection off of Hunter Renfro to deny Yandy Diaz a run, you know that you're you're swimming in very strange waters at that point, right? They got three of the, maybe the three best innings of Nick Pavetta's life. Yeah. Which I, I don't, like, Nick Pavetta himself, who is just a, a, an, a, an avatar of chaos on his own, you know, as, as all yeah. ex-Phillies prospects must be, but... Yeah, everything about the Red Sox and the way they do things, you, there is a there is sense to everything that is done. Like, I, and this is something where Cora doesn't give me the same vibes as. It's funny, I can't even really think of like a truly like wild manager who just makes gut decisions without even really, you know, I, I don't really think those guys exist anymore. Or yeah, they've they, largely they've largely faded into the background. I think that there are certainly guys who have like a a better potential for those kinds of moments than others but in terms of it being a consistent managerial approach it does it does not really comport itself well with modern baseball anymore no but i think cora especially and we've seen in the postseason because we saw it in 2018 too the way he had to rejigger the bullpen and use use starters as relievers and and mixing up the lineup and just changing things constantly i think that that's just you know, one, that's just his style, I think, in the postseason because he recognizes this is the time when pretty much everything needs to be done pedal to the metal and there's no real room for just, oh, we'll wait for tomorrow. But at the same time, the decisions he makes, you can see at the very least the logic in all of them. And for the most part, you agree with pretty much all of them. I think there are only a, a small handful of moments throughout the series where I was like, wait, why is he doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And of course, you know, every it, it's very easy to armchair and say that doesn't make any sense. But truly, I think Cora is somehow kind of if not perfected, at least gotten really good at finding that balance between chaos and calm, logical, rational thought. Yeah. Where it at least feels like all the rash, all the chaotic decisions at least have some element of logic and rationality to them so that you don't feel like this is a guy who's just shooting from the hip at every, at every possible angle. It's more that he's, he's shooting like he can see what he's shooting at and he's got his aim right, but he does that thing where you turn the gun sideways. <laughs> And so it just yeah. lo- it looks cooler. It probably makes your aim worse, but it looks way cooler. The the unnecessary like gangster movie, yeah, move of 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 twisting your pistol. Yeah, exactly. Twisting your pistol because that's how people talk about gangster movies, right? That is exactly how they. That, that's, I, that's that's a, a a famous line from Goodfellas where yeah. Robert De Niro tells Ray Liotta to twist his pistol. Yeah, 
I don't know, his, his entire life, all he's been wanting to do is twist yeah. his pistol. Yeah, I, I mean, like the ones that stood out to me have been sort of at the margins even, right? Where it's like, so why aren't you pinch running for Christian Vasquez sooner with Danny Santana? That that seemed like it took longer than it ought to have. But in general, it seemed like he was, he was doing fine. I want to ask you two specific questions about this series. And then I do want to briefly indulge in a little bit of rule book talk because um, it is not effectively wild if Meg does not insist on rule book talk. I am curious when, in your experience of the 2021 Red Sox, you realized that you needed to appreciate and understand Garrett Whitlock. So that came relatively early for me, because I do remember in spring training that he was already getting talked up as being like not good, not just in the way that a lot of teams talk about Rule 5 players, where they're desperately trying to convince everyone listening, no, 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 we're going to keep him, we're going to keep him, we're serious. Right. But like a legitimate like, no, this kid's actually good and is actually going to have a role. And part of that was because the Red Sox bullpen isn't good or wasn't good, briefly was good, got bad again, and now has settled into somewhere around okay, depending on who happens to be in at any given moment. But to me, it became really clear early on that like this was not just your average rule five guy who was going to show up when you're down or up five runs and give up a run on the process. Like this was... Like, if nothing else, the legitimate velocity, you know, working 97-99 with good movement on everything. And just the fact, too, that, and I think you, you definitely saw it in the playoffs, you know. And, I mean, I, I love the big celebrations. I loved every time Nick Pavetta came off the mound. You know, he was just, he was marking out, like, you know, just wild, the chest slapping, the jumping. the I love that stuff, especially in the playoffs. But I do find it instructive, or at least noteworthy that when you watch Whitlock pitch and he walks off the mound he just looks he just looks like he just finished taking like his driver's license test right right. it's just the most unaffected (laughs) like okay fine that just happened and it's like even even just beyond the stuff like any I I don't you don't even recall off the top of my head how old he is but he's he can't be any older than like 23 or 24 I would guess he's he's 25 25, he's a he's a a June a June 25 though so he he is 25 years four months and one day wow happy past four months one day (laughs) whatever point is It is kind of crazy to see a 25-year-old kid who's also, and it's worth noting too, coming off or came off at one point, you know, reconstructive elbow surgery and is way past, I would imagine, any amount of at least performance, if not innings, that he's ever had in his life. And he still just looks like this is just the most simple thing in the world to him. And that's just like, that, that really stands out, I think, especially because he keeps getting put into situations that are absolutely terrifying. I mean, okay, there, there is the one Cora move where, and I, and I do think this Cora thing is more about the trust and relationships he has with the players on his team, as opposed to a strictly, you know, black and white analytics based decision, mm-hmm. is not using Whitlock in the eighth innings of games three and four, and instead using Hansel Robles and Ryan Brazier respectively and allowing Tampa both times to, to erase a lead and tie the game. And then Whitlock comes in anyway and throws two innings both times. And everyone's right. sitting there being like, well, why didn't he just do that to start? Yeah, that's a good that's a good one that I should have mentioned apart from, you know, Danny Santana. But and I mean, th- I mean, these things tend to get, you know, when you win, all these things tend to disappear into the into the footnotes. Right. But at the same time, I I think that's one of those things where it's like part of it is Robles and Brazier have pitched well. And I think Cora recognizes that and does not want to pitch his 25 year old rule five elbow surgery repaired rookie six outs every time he has. But I also do think some of that is just trying to boost the confidence of those guys and being able to give wit to tell Whitlock. It's like you're not going to have to carry everything like, right, you know, we're going to try to build a bridge to you as opposed to making you the entire Andrew Miller side bridge 
Right. We're going to try to throw Ryan Brazier's exhausted body over this gap. Yeah. And when that fails, you will use his body to cross to that walk. gap yourself. Right. <laughs> the first man the first man shoots and the second man takes his rifle and then begins shooting. <laughs> pistol, John. Pistol. pistol. Yes. First man twists the pistol. Yeah, I'm being reminded now as I look at um Whitlock's player page that he was a he was a Zips twenty twenty one top one hundred guy, so Good job, uh, Zimborski. Like he was seventy seventh on Dan's Zips top one hundred list prior to the season. Yeah, and, and I think again, that's just I know part of that is obviously the the translations Dan gets from when Whitlock's minor league stats, but I think yeah. too, it's like it's the same thing. It's like a guy who throws ninety nine with good command. Yeah, that that's yeah, that, that is tends- going to work regardless of. Well, not regardless, but that's probably going to work. <laughs> yeah, that tends to play. So, well, that is that is the Garrett Whitlock of it all. And we were able to see that coming uh, if we were close observers over the course of the season. The next guy I want to ask you about has been quite good for stretches of his uh, major league career. So I don't mean to say this is coming out of nowhere, but I have sure enjoyed getting to know this particular postseason's version of Kike Hernandez. Yes. Because uh, goodness, has that, has that been fun to watch? <laughs> yeah, and I especially like it because Kike is one of those guys who's always had that reputation more of kind of the the funny clubhouse guy who's there yeah. for more for like, not more for, but as much for his, what he brings to the team personality wise and in the clubhouse as for what he provided to the Dodgers in terms of being a super utility guy who who killed left handers. I won't lie, I wasn't crazy about that signing when the Red Sox made it. Which is nothing against Kike Hernandez personally. I, I really liked that. That was that was the aspect I really liked. Is yes, this this is the kind of team, especially after an awful season like last year, yeah, and in a clubhouse that is probably still reeling post Mookie trade, to bring in a guy who's got that reputation of being a positive, energetic, you know, kind of every team needs at least I think like two or three of those guys just to to keep things loose. But I wasn't crazy about the idea of taking this guy who had shown pretty well over the course of his Dodgers career that he should not be a full time starter against right handed pitching. And that defensively, while he was adequate to good pretty much ever, was kind of the question of, okay, but is he really someone you want to trust 145, 150 games at second base or at center field or, you know, whatever it happened to be that the Red Sox needed. And it turned out to be a, a lot of second base because that position has been cursed and haunted by ghosts ever since Dustin Pedroia's knee injury. And I think this is this is another Cora thing, too, because this is something he has come out and said that part of the reason he wanted Kike on this team, and I, I believe they have a connection just through... Uh, through both they're both Puerto Rican, and I believe Kike has played for the Puerto Rican WBC team under Cora, but I I can't recall exactly. That obviously they they had a pre-existing relationship, but Cora was very adamant that no, this guy can be a full-time player. You know, he he, if you give him the opportunities and if you give him the at bats, he will actually produce. You know, he was a part-time player in LA because he had to be because there were a lot of other guys in front of him, and that was how the Dodgers best decided he would work. I wasn't sold on that, and there was a good chunk of the season, too, where it just seemed like it wasn't really working. You know, especially as a leadoff hitter, he didn't really seem to be clicking there. Leadoff being a problem that the Red Sox, I don't think, really truly solved until Kyle Schwarber showed up, and now they have very much locked into that. Which is just the best fit, best weird fit. Yes. Love it, love it. Yes, leadoff hitter Kyle Schwarber. It's perfect. <laughs> I, I'm so happy about it. But it's funny because I, 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 the superlatives here really are just like he's just a, a good guy. But now he's also just apparently been possessed by the spirit of, I guess, Randy or Rosarana. Maybe they body swapped or something. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't know. They Randy wasn't without energy That's in this true. playoff series. So I think that I don't know if a body swap is quite the right comp. But I do. I mean, I do think it's, it's, it works that there is, again, a certain element of if Alex Cora believes in you that somehow makes you 20% better of a baseball player. I 
I don't know what he does or what it is he has. But I think, too, it's just a lot of that, too, I think, is some element of he is in the best position possible in that lineup to do damage and to be a guy who can do damage because he's behind Schwarber, so he's got a pretty regular presence ahead of him in the lineup who will be on base. And he's got Devers and Bogarts behind him. So if you're a pitcher, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, I don't really want to deal with Kyle Schwarber and I don't really want to deal with Rafael Devers, and I really don't want to deal with Xander Bogarts and J.D. Martinez, but this little dude who isn't very good, has not been very good against right-handers in his career? Yeah, I'll pitch to this guy. Right. I will be curious to see, regardless of whether or not it's Houston or whether it's Houston or Chicago that advances, what the advanced scouting and approach to him looks like. Yeah. He was getting a lot of strikes against Tampa Bay for reasons that I am not fully clear on, because... Generally, I think he's been a, a good strike hitter. Also, you don't really want to give hittable strikes to anyone, but right, right. I, I think I don't know if it's the case for sure because I I do not I know I did not talk to Kevin Cash or anyone. I wonder if Tampa's strategy was just we can we'll we'll fi- we're fine if he gets his hits. We just need to keep everybody else down because you know this is not the most dangerous guy in the lineup. But I certainly think that being where he is in the lineup helps. I certainly think the fact that he is getting regular at-bats and can be in this position where he can lock into a groove and kind of just relax and know that, you know, the, the opportunities are going to be there has probably helped. I, I always did kind of wonder that with Dodgers, with Dodgers and Rays players both, that on the one hand, they were usually, if not often, put in a position to succeed based on handedness or pitcher they were facing or whatever the particular situation happened to be. But I also wonder how, I also thought it must have been so difficult for all those players to be able to keep that level of performance up when you're only being asked to play once every three games or you're getting two right. at-bats every two days or, or whatever it is, or you're only coming in to play three innings of defense or whatever it happens to be, especially in the postseason, too, I feel like, when you do want to get yourself into that space. Because, like, granted, what after what he did in game two, he was never going to come out of that lineup because you don't take out a guy who has five hits and, and, you know, 17 total bases or whatever it was. But that is the benefit, too, there, that because he is a full-time starter, Alex Cora doesn't have to sit down and be like, oh, well, you know, he, he had a great night last night, but we have another handed starter coming up, so I'm going to pull him out of the line and put someone else in there. Analytically, could you argue that's a better move? I mean, I'm I'm making up a whole ghost Red Sox roster now where they platoon Kike <laughs> Hernandez, but better said, is what is how the Dodgers used him the smart way to use him. It is a smart way to use him. Right. Is the Red Sox way as smart? Probably not, because they are letting him take at-bats against right-handed pitchers he probably should not be facing, although I at the same time the roster doesn't really give them a, an alternative otherwise. But I think it has helped him reach this level of consistency that he's never really had the opportunity to get to before. And I and I know this is it feels weird to say on, you know, Effectively Wild, the podcast at Fangraphs, the analytical baseball site with the analytics and the numbers. But it really I really do think there is something to be said about playing for a guy who says, no, you're just you're just the regular starter, good or bad. You know, you will go out there and you will do your job and I believe in you. And which is not to say like other managers don't do this. I don't think there's sure. any manager who goes around to his players and is like, who the hell are you? I don't believe in you at all. But <laughs> I mean, I, I just the thing I come back to is in all the post Red Sox victory kind of pieces, uh, one by Chad Jennings over the athletic who talked to Garrett Whitlock and Whitlock's quote was and it was a great quote. And it was, I think a line that's kind of stuck with me since I read it last night is Alex Cora will get you to run through a wall. And even if you think to yourself, there's no way I can actually run through that wall, you're also thinking he'll find a way to make it happen for us, basically. Yeah, I think that the official stance of Effectively Wild on on questions like this is is not that that stuff 
doesn't matter. I think quantifying how much it matters, right? And yeah. certainly being able to determine, you know, whether it can sort of counterbalance other factors is is much harder. But I think that it makes very good sense that human beings respond to motivation and incentives in their workplace in ways that can enhance their engagement with their jobs and and move them to sort of really lock in and try to do their very best, which isn't to say that there aren't clubhouses that are weird and dysfunctional that don't manage to win a lot of baseball games. But I think that that stuff definitely matters. I mean, arguably, the strategic part of managing, as we mentioned earlier, is is like much better in hand. I think the distribution of of talent on that side of things is far narrower than it used to be. And so I'm persuaded that that stuff matters and that particularly for guys who have been in utility roles um, or who are quite young and are still acclimating to the majors that like a, a deft hand on the manager's part is probably pretty important to them and has, you know, that they sort of reap psychological benefit from that. How much that can offset, you know, underlying differences in true talent. Like, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that that stuff does definitely matter because like we've all had bosses right and we're not motivated to do good work when you're working for a jerk so exactly and on the other hand you have a manager who believes in you and is and i think too just that sense of if even if things start to go wrong even if i slumped even if i pitch a few bad innings whatever it is that manager is still going to be there like no 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 you're still an important valuable part of our team and we're going to keep using you because i think that that's been the case for pretty much every non kind of established star member of this red sox team has had a stretch at some point this season where they were bad, they were ineffective, they were unproductive, and yet they are still part of this. There really are few guys on this team who have been who have been completely frozen out. I think most every player on the ALDS roster was used, with the exception of, I believe, Martin Perez and Adam Adovino, which, given that the Red Sox played a 13-inning game, is kind of ridiculous to think about. Yeah. But at the same time, like, Alex Cora gets, it seems like he's very good at getting the most out of his roster, even if it is not the same kind of hyper deep, hyper flexible roster that the Dodgers and Rays have made kind of, sure. uh, or even I think now the Giants too have, have kind of right. fallen into that category of the really modern baseball roster where you have 25 guys, each of whom can do four different things. Or maybe you have three guys, each of whom only does one thing, but they do that one thing really, really, really well. Well, and I think that in a short series, well, having the ability to mix and match in a short series is useful, but I do think that it takes a lot longer than five or seven games for the marginal benefits that you're you're sort of realizing as a part of a deep roster that is deployed in very specific ways. You know, I think it's muted over a shorter series how much that stuff matters, which isn't to say it doesn't matter, but I think that you tend to see those benefits accrue over, you know, half or full season's worth of games rather than just a short one. So I don't know that it tends to matter quite as much. Not that people don't need depth in the playoffs as I think both teams sort of experienced it in this series when it came to their pitching. But um, I do think that that stuff tends to mute a little bit. That's more the thing is obviously in the AL, the the pitching depth is the thing that matters. I mean, the other part is that Cora really barely touched his bench because he has very few options in the lineup that he's going to pinch hit for really at any point except for the catcher spot maybe and... Honestly, that's about. I mean, he pinched it for Bobby Dahlbeck last night after Dahlbeck came in as a defensive replacement, but that was more just to get the platoon advantage with with Travis Shaw. So 
How long do you think it will take Bobby Dalbeck to look as old as he actually is? I would love to know if he's tried to grow a mustache and what it looks like. And I, I don't mean it like, you know, it sounds like I'm knocking like the kid and I'm not because, you know, he's going to look youthful while, when he's like <laughs> 50 and I am going to look like Mad Madam Mims from Disney movie when I'm 50. So joke's on me. But um, he he looks like a teen. He looks still as a teen, uh, and especially when you when you had um, more grizzled veterans standing next to him, I'm like, by God, that guy looks young. He is yeah, a, I, he's a young man. I had a I had a friend over. She's crashing with me for a few days while she's apartment hunts in the city because she just moved back here. And so we were watching the game last night. And when Bobby Dahlbeck comes up, she's like, "Is he 12? Yeah, <laughs> he's a baby. He's like, yeah. and it's amazing to be the baby face on a team that already has Raphael Devers." Right, right. Who yeah, I don't he's... think has finished high school yet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting combination of aesthetics on that Red Sox team. Well, I want to briefly talk about the rule book uh, thing. Just because mostly, I, I will admit to this, I am mostly relieved that this was ruled correctly, even if the rule itself is perhaps in need of some revisiting in terms of what it incentivizes. Because what I was worried would be true is that we would all dig into the rule book and we would find the part of the rule book that pertains to this exact circumstance and they would have sent it to New York and then it would be wrong. And then it would be a disaster because that would be all we'd talk about. The rest of the postseason would be how the Rays, you know, the Rays, they got their opportunity taken away from them unfairly. And this was decided correctly, but it sure seems like this rule needs to be rewritten a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, on the one hand, yes, because it, th that was the thing that blew me away was that there wasn't a... I know that there is the rule, you know, that was, as you said, was correctly interpreted that if the ball makes contact with the fielder like that and bounces out of play, it's a two, it's a ground rule double and two bases are awarded to everybody from the from the pitch when it was thrown. Right. But at the same time, it was kind of weird to me. It's like there is no rule in the in the in the book literally that covers this exact like how how in 900 years of baseball has this has this exact scenario not come up before? And I guess it has because that rule is in there, but. I don't know. I, I think this is this is the one thing I was I was a little that I saw a lot of of talk about on Twitter that I admittedly was a little annoying to me because there were a lot of people saying like, well, why does next time this happens, just kick the ball into the into the stands and that'll solve the problem. It's like, well, no, because at the very least, like, I don't know exactly what the range of umpire discretion is when it comes to applying the rules, like how much how much wiggle room they have to to interpret it. I don't know if this is something where umpires are more like Scalia or, you know, your more liberal justices. Oh, God. But <laughs> uh, we got to get a lawyer on for this. But yeah, regardless, like, no, but if a, I mean, the umpire, at least I would hope would have the discretion that if what had happened, if, if the ball had bounced off Renfro and just landed in the dirt and if he had just kind of soccer kicked it up over the wall into the into the bullpen and thrown his hands up and go, oh, no, it went over the wall. I would like to hope that the replay would have made it abundantly clear that, no, that's not what happened. And if that is what had happened, the umpires would have been able to say, OK, because like you intentionally to like toss the ball out of play, run scores or, or whatever, whatever the exact scenario would have happened to be there. So on the one hand, like, OK, maybe the rule could stand to be a tad more specific in terms of that, I suppose. But at the same time, if you do give the umpires that leeway to decide basically intentionality versus unintentionality, which I know kind of a gray area. Right. But still, like, I, I think it, if nothing else, the Renfro one was really clear cut. He was very clearly not trying to knock that ball into the bullpen. Correct. He, it just, it, it was a see, fluke thing. It, it was, was a, a total, it was a complete freak, fluke. Weird, config, you know, 
conglomeration of his positioning, the reality of how short that outfield wall is, like it is just a and strange physics. and physics. It is just very strange set of circumstances. Well, and in the the umpires handbook because there is there's the rule book and then there is a separate handbook that is given to umpires to help them further interpret those rules and there is there is language in there about if a you know if a fielder comes into possession of the ball right if they so if he had caught it cleanly and then had thrown it into the stands then the award is two bases from the position of the runners at the time of it being sort of launched into the stands or kicked or whatever. But it does seem as if we have the ability now with replay to determine sort of what is a reasonable advancement based on when the deflection takes place relative to where the runner was. Because I think that the place where people got exercised and when I was watching it, I was like, well, but he he just would have scored standing up, right? Yeah, it's and, that's, not- and, and I, maybe that's the thing. I've, I've never terribly understood why with a runner on first, an automatic or ground rule double puts that runner on third. I understand two bases for a double, so two bases for the runner. And I'd, and I'd love to know the exact percentage of this, and I'm sure it, it, it exists somewhere. Most runners, I would wager, especially, and of course, the the context there matters, but even in a context-less situation, like, you know, regardless of whether or not the count is 3-2 and the runner is going with the pitch, most runners in that scenario score. Right. Like, the only guys who, not the only guys, but the the guys who don't are more your your, your catchers, your your first basemen, your DHs, guys who might be hurt. And I know that, you know, you can't really ask umpires necessarily to be like, well, it was Manny Margot on first, or or, sorry, it was Andy Diaz. He was an above, or was at least an average, if not above average runner. And it was 3-2 count, so he was going with the pitch. So therefore, based on that combination of circumstances, we must award him for home plate because he would have scored anyway. I guess that is the weird thing is like, if you're giving the umpire leeway to decide how many bases, then you're also asking to take into account like five different contextual things about the literal game itself that they're not paying attention to or are not really qualified to judge, I think, necessarily. I don't know if I... if And I know that's not what you're saying is just, you know, have the umpire put runners wherever they feel like it, uh, right, right. chaos rules. But I, I guess that's the thing. It's like, you can either have the rule as is with the locked in two bases, and sometimes stuff like this happens where it is just patently unfair. Because yeah, Diaz would have scored easily. Yep. It should have been a five four game, barring that weird little fluke. And really, even with the fluke, you can make like you said, you can make the easy argument. Well, he was going to score anyway, so just put him over there. Right. But at the same time, like let's say that scenario happens again, but Diaz isn't running with the pitch, or it's a, it's Mike Zanino on first base. Sorry, right, Megan, right. not to not to pick. No, on slow boy. He's slow a slow boy. boy. He's a very slow boy. Yeah. You know, would the umpire, would Rays fans still feel at that point that Zanino would have scored on that ball? I mean, he probably would have because if that hadn't hopped, it would have been a, a more likely not a triple for Kiermaier. But, right. you know, that, that's the thing. If you're putting a slower runner, if there's a slower runner and the, the count is different and it just becomes a thing. Where it's like, how how do you decide what the what the extra base should be? Unless you kind of have a locked in like, no, it's just two bases or it's, you know, like, or example, like with the when Alex Verdugo let off the eighth with a ground ball that uh, Wander Franco threw away, they just gave him second base. It's like, well, you could argue realistic if that play kept developing, maybe somehow he gets the third. He probably doesn't. But there are plays like that where a throw gets away and you could realistically see the runner getting past second or a runner on first who can move past third if something silly happens. I don't know. I, I sometimes I think baseball just has to lock itself into these weird little scenarios where even if the even if the reality is unfair, that's just what it has to be because otherwise yeah. it just opens the door to way too much potential nonsense. And I especially like the idea too that that is like all of that was set rule so that we also didn't have to waste an ungodly amount of time with both managers 
coming out to yell and argue and plead their case like this is some kind of oral argument in front of the Supreme Court because it's just right. that's not what this is like I don't want right. to I want the I want the game to be played fairly and correctly I want the rules to be interpreted correctly but I also don't want this to turn into like I said oral arguments in front of the Supreme yeah. Court where we have managers trying to parse no he should be there and that guy should be there while the rest of us are all trying to figure out where the MLB rulebook even is much less what section we need to turn to Right. You know, we're not we're not all Emma B. We don't have that one memorized front to back. Yeah. I mean, like I <laughs> part of why uh, Emma Bajelari and I are friends is because we are both people who have spent a good deal of time reading the rule book like for fun. And even I had to like dig around to remind myself of what that rule was. So, yeah, it's I think that this one was decided correctly. I share your appreciation that Kevin Cash was like, OK, that's the rule. Like, here we go. We're you know not going to argue it. And I am happy for the Rays that that game ended up being decided decided by more than a run so that you know we don't have to spend quite as much time looking back on it but and, the, and just like quickly to say the other part of it too was it, it happened with two outs so that there was still a chance for Tampa to score a run anyway if Zanino had if he hadn't struck out if he'd made contact or whatever it was, right. you know, there was still an opportunity for them to get the run anyway yeah yeah so that is perhaps where we can leave Tampa and and Boston at least for now although I have a mean question for you Okay. Are you just like very worried about being tormented by Wander Franco the rest of your life? Only up until the point where the Rays decide he gets decide oh, he gets too expensive, no, which I is when mean... the second oh. he starts making a million dollars. But <laughs> I didn't want to set you up for that. But um, <laughs> boy, if you're if you're a Rays fan and you're I'm trying sorry, I'm sorry today, to the Rays fans. <laughs> on on this morning, you're trying like the, to to the last person I want to hear from right now is me. <laughs> yeah, make yourself feel better. You're probably like, well, that that Wander kid. He's I will he's say in in the, for the Rays, like I genuinely i i like the i like the Rays team because I like a lot of these players. Randy Rosemann is awesome. Wander Franco yeah. is already a top twenty five player in baseball, which is terrifying to think about for yeah. as much as i complain about kevin kiermeyer collecting every ball hit to center field for the nine years he has been on the race which is wild to think about he's been on the race assuming he makes a team or that they don't trade him or i can't remember what his contract status is anyway but assuming he's on that team next year be a full decade of kevin yeah. kiermeyer on the race which is wild i just the the thing to me and you saw i saw a lot of this on twitter last night the and this is, I think, inevitable when the Rays lose is the immediate anti like nerd quote unquote backlash of yeah. oh if the Rays were so smart why'd they lose because their ownership doesn't see doesn't see it fit to spend more money on them that's like yeah. the, the the Wander Franco joke I make is not something out of I don't want Rays fans to enjoy Wander Franco I want them to enjoy one he's awesome he's really cool he's Mookie you know he's their Mookie. Right. But at the same time, if, if Randy isn't their Mookie, rather, but at the same time, it is just the reality that this ownership group in Tampa and this is just. It's, this isn't even like it, it's just the reality that they are going to trade him the moment he gets too expensive. They're not going to keep him. They don't keep anyone. They're not going to keep anyone. They're they're spending more time this post. They spend more time this postseason trying to figure out how to make this. And I, I love this word. and I saw it in connection to some of these in this Fakakta Tampa Montreal plan happen. It's just that that I think to me is, is the real kind of tragedy for Rays fans that they have this brilliant, wonderful team and this incredibly smart front office and coaching staff and player development staff. And the thing that lets them down time and time again and is going to keep letting them down, at least I imagine time and time again going forward, is that there's ownership that just doesn't feel like having this be anything more than the 25th lowest payroll in baseball. And that just sucks. That sucks really because I don't know necessarily that there was one one extra move the Rays could or should have made beyond maybe they should have kept Charlie Morton. That probably would have been smart. 
But yeah. it is always a thing to think about. What would this race team look like if you just spent twenty million more dollars? Right. That's yeah. all you would need to do, really. I think this is not a team that has to go to one hundred fifty million dollars to be a World Series winner. Very clearly, that's not the case. But a little right. bit extra. Yeah, I find the race discourse to be kind of exhausting because i i just don't think that it's like sufficiently nuanced which is shocking for um something that happens on twitter wow i don't can't believe it think that like a, a team's performance in a five game series negates the the very real talent that exists on that roster i'm not saying that you think that and i think that if ever there was a player where you you decide to to shell out for him that Wander franco might be that guy i do agree that when you as an organization um, foreclose an entire avenue of improving your team, it's risky and it does sort of limit what you can do. Now it is a testament to the the talents of both these players and the people who work in that front office and on their scouting side that like this is still a remarkably good ball club. And I think that if you have more avenues to bolster your roster, you're better off, right? That's why the Dodgers are the Dodgers, because they do all of the good um, sort of player dev and analytics work and have really talented guys like Tampa does, and they allow themselves to spend money. So I share the the frustration. I do hope, though, that like we can at least say, like, this is a really good ball club yes and that's they were a legitimate 100 win team legitimately the yeah. best team in the american league legitimately like i think there are moments you can point to in that series where the ownership and transigence towards spending money i think especially in game four where you have shane mcclanahan on three days rest as a rookie at the end of the longest season of his life being asked to get outs in a uh, believe at the time a scoreless game against the most difficult part of this red sox order on the road that's definitely a scenario where you feel like maybe if you had an extra starter, if you had just paid for one extra starter, if right. you kept Charlie Morton, if you hadn't traded Rich Hill, if you'd just gone out and gotten like a pick pick a starter from the from the from last offseason who would have been available on a cheap one to two year contract and would have been at least league average. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but that was probably a moment where you're like, okay, this is where this team's cheapness really comes back to bite them. But otherwise, like all the stuff that happened in this series that kind of didn't go the Rays way it was just variant stuff. It was that fluke yeah. play. It was Manny Margot being called out on that stolen base because he came off the bag by an inch. It right. was, you know, it was a, a thousand other things you can point to that that made the difference in this series that, that had nothing to do with the quality of the race because they're a super, super good team. They're terrifying to face. They're exhausting. Like, it felt like Wander Franco and Randy Rosarino were at bat every inning, and they weren't, but right. there are players in that lineup who were nearly damn as good anyway. Right. And so that's like, yes, legitimate... Five game series teaches you nothing about the the actual goodness of that team, but it does really feel like one of those things where it's like if you want to make sure that those variant moments hurt you less, it probably helps to have a roster built up around you that can weather those moments a little better because you have guys. I mean, this this was the thing with last year, like you just said, basically the the twenty twenty World Series was the Rays against the Rays, but with superstars. Right. So. I, I just I, I feel a lot for the Rays and I especially feel for them now, too, because it's very clear this franchise is actually going to pursue this idiotic Montreal plan. And I I don't know, like, what what do you do when your team's eliminated? And the first thing you hear about franchise wise is, well, sorry, guys, it was a really fun season. Tune in next year when we're going to try to spend half our time when we're going to spend all our time trying to convince you that actually Canada's where we want to be playing, not this dump of a stadium next yeah. to a highway. Yeah, it's it's a rough way to wake up the day after you've been eliminated, yeah. for sure. And so that my condolences to Tampa. They're a very good, very fun team. 
I make jokes about them online all the time because it's very easy and because I can never resist easy shots. But <laughs> they are so much fun to watch when they got it, especially when they're just clicking, when you just see all the pieces fall into place and you're like, oh, this is basically a perfectly built baseball team from top to bottom. That's terrifying yeah. to think about. Yeah. Well, we leave that series behind right now as we record. We are in the bottom of the first of Houston White Sox. Carlos Rodon threw 99 in the prior inning. So, you know, that is at least a good sign for his early going here. Um, so we will wait the conclusion of that series to find out who the Red Sox are playing. So we'll wait to preview it until we know what their opponent looks like. But let's briefly touch on the NL here. The Brewers stand on the brink of elimination, as do the Dodgers, which is surprising, perhaps. And I guess I will ask, which of those two outcomes is the most surprising to you, John? Probably Dodgers, and not so much because I expected... I mean, I, I picked them to win that series. No, sorry, I picked the Giants to win that series. So I don't know. I guess I, guess I don't know really why I'd be surprised. But I think it's... <laughs> It's less about the surprise that the Dodgers are losing and more about the Brewers being down 2-1 and having scored a grand total of two runs in three games. Like, yeah, that that scans. Yeah. That, that part. Everything that's happened with the Brewers so far has played exactly out as you would expect it to. They've gotten two really good pitching performances. Three, really, although Freddie Peralta was... was Freddie Peralta's start was, was shorter, obviously, than Corbin Burns' right. and Brandon Woodruff's. But they've gotten excellent pitching and no offense to speak of which was pretty much the case all year. I mean, pulling from Kevin Goldstein's Game 3 recap, a team that finished, I believe, top five in the NL in runs, but toward the bottom in both OPS and, and WRC+. Plus. So, yeah. you know, peripherally, not a good team. And as KG mentioned, like, it took a Willie Adamas hot streak, the likes of which he had never experienced, yeah. plus guys like Luis Urias and Rowdy Telez kind of catching fire for a bit for them to get even that far. Yeah. And that's the thing, you look at that lineup going to that series and you kind of, you ask yourself, who exactly here is the guy you can rely on to do damage? Like where, where is the chunk of the lineup that a, that a pitcher is scared to face? I know that's like a, it, this sounds like an extremely like sports talk radio way of, re of referencing it, <laughs> but it really is just a, an average offense at best that doesn't really have consistent power threats. A lot of these guys are more contact oriented hitters like Colton Wong or Luis Urias or Adames or. You know, and especially with Christian Yelich continuing to have disappeared sometime around the end of 2019 and never having come back. Yeah, the the fact that the Brewers are where they are against a team in Atlanta that doesn't pitch as well as they do, but still pitches pretty well and has a much better offense to boot. Yeah, that, it doesn't surprise me that they are where they are and that they are in this position because it really I think it really was going to take either Burns, Woodruff and Peralta are all Madison Bumgarner together, 2014 yeah. Madison Bumgarner rather, or they need one to three of those guys in that lineup to go just wild over the course of five games. They need they need a Kike Hernandez type performance because that lineup just is not consistent enough to put together offensive rallies on the regular. There are way too many dead spots in that lineup. There are way too many guys who are not capable of doing really anything other than like ripping a single between first and second, which, hey, you're on base, but you know. And I think we've seen this. It's really hard to build rallies in the postseason. Yeah. Um, unless oh, yeah. you are a hyper, either you're, unless you're the Astros and you just have a, a lineup that goes seven deep somehow, or you're a hyper contact oriented team that's really good at executing fundamental and, fundamentals and small ball, which the Brewers are. But that, I think, obviously works better against bad teams, certainly, than right. it does against a Braves team that is genuinely, legitimately good. And I think the other the other surprise, if there is a surprise to me, is that Atlanta is as good as it is, despite the fact that they that, it, you know, the Braves lost Ronald Acuna and their outfield was a mess and they don't have Mike Soroka and their bullpen is a mess. Yeah. Same kind of Red Sox vibes over. They just they make it happen regardless. And I think it's just they have enough 
above average stars where they need to be to kind of carry the the parts of the roster that don't really work right now. The links in the chain are a little weak in some places, but the other links are strong enough, I guess, to make up for it. That's a terrible metaphor, but I'm sticking with it. I think that that works. I, I guess like the part of it that is that is the most surprising to me about LA finding themselves in the position they do is is not that the Giants are not a good team because they certainly are. There's you know there's realness to their record that I think we often don't see when a team outperforms its projections as as significantly as San Francisco did, but that you know on a night where you get like kind of a vintage Scherzer start that you still manage to lose that game. Sometimes I guess that is literally just how the wind blows. It li- yes, I I love that baseball is baseball and football, the two sports where the you can just lose to the wind. Yeah, you can you can <laughs> lose to weather. And I don't say that to discount the performance that the the Giants put up last night because they had to compete in those same conditions obviously and good gracious did Evan Longoria hit the snot out of that ball but um, it was surprising and I guess I didn't realize just when the Santa Ana's blow through but here we are I'm going to ask you 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 made your staff predictions I do not remember what they were John and I'm not going to look it up neither do I actually it doesn't matter (laughs) I'm going to give you the opportunity to either reaffirm your very smart predictions or recast them entirely what what do you expect we are going to get as our our championship series matchups and then our world series matchup so it's funny you mentioned that the, just quickly with the Giants, they are going to be hoisting the commissioner's trophy and celebrating on the field. And I'm going to be sitting there going, but are they actually good? <laughs> yeah, we we have talked about this a, a good deal on the podcast. I I admitted to being skeptical of them in a way that did not feel fair. And I think I still have some of that skepticism just because, you know, the Dodgers are capable of going on an offensive run, even without Max Muncy. But then you then you watch Cody Bellinger again and you're like, well, maybe some of this makes a a, a bit of sense. I think it's fair when you have a team where 85 year old Buster Posey and 76 year old Brandon Crawford and 93 year old Evan Longoria are leading the charge for there to be at least some skepticism about like, wait a minute, that doesn't that doesn't scan with the last like five years. What the hell? Yeah. As to my predictions, I had the Rays in the World Series, so we're just going to act like that didn't happen. (laughs) The one year I finally decide I'm tired of betting against them. I'm tired of picking against them. They always make me look stupid. I'm just going to buy in 100% on the Rays. That's what I deserve. I think we're going to end up, my prediction would be, obviously, the Red Sox are one half the ALCS. I think Houston will be the other half. Mm-hmm. If only because coming back from 2-1 in a five-game series is very, very difficult. Yeah. I don't really think the White Sox have this lined up particularly well either, even if they win today, tomorrow, or yes, or would, they yeah, wouldn't play tomorrow. again tomorrow. So that's the other yeah. thing. They have, there's a really quick turnaround for everybody. Right. I think, especially because I don't think they can rely on Rodone. Watch him prove me wrong. We'll see how many innings they get today, but I think obviously they're going to have to keep leaning on the bullpen. Yeah. And then the situation in game five, it's either Lance Lynn or it's Lucas Giolito, neither of whom pitched particularly well in games one or two. And Lynn in particular with his super fastball heavy repertoire does not seem to be a good guy to go up against this Astros lineup. I don't really know what the White Sox, pl- I don't even, I don't know if the White Sox even have a plan that far. I think it's just win today and we'll figure it out from there. Right. I think if it is a Red Sox Houston ALCS, I do see Houston winning the pennant. That offense is just way too strong. It's so good. It's like, and the thing is, like, so good. (laughs) For as much as I say the Rays were a great top to bottom team, there were points in that lineup, especially once the relievers started coming in and Tampa had to start adjusting its platoon heavy strategy because, you know, they they load the lineup one way and then they have to keep flipping and flipping and flipping. And because you only have so many hitters, you can't really get away with that forever. There were spots in there, Kiermaier, 
for the most part, Zanino, uh, the G-Man Choi, Jordan Luplo, Yandy Diaz triad of, of interchangeableness. You know, there were points where you could kind of take a break, and there were points where you felt a little more comfortable, and it helped that you had guys like Nelson Cruz in a bad slump, or yeah. that Austin Meadows wasn't able to do as much this series because there was a lot of there were just a lot of left-handers he had to face. Whereas right, Houston, or that, or that you had Brandon Lau in like just a slump to end yeah, all what, slumps. What is it that happens to him when the postseason I starts? I don't know, man. It's, he, I think it's just you know, I, I don't know. I don't have a good explanation. I mean, guys slump all the time. It's not a postseason phenomenon, but his cold streaks sure run real cold. So yeah, yeah. He, I felt I felt bad for the guy. He was like, I think he was zero for five with when he came up with runners in scoring position. And did he get a single hit in that Boston series? I do. I believe no. No, I think so, he, he was hitless, you know, and I think he struck out in half his plate appearances. He yeah. Really Really, so he really had was, a bad time. That was rough. Yeah. Whereas with Houston, it's like your your weak spots are Martin Maldonado, who, yeah, weak spot, but every catcher is a weak spot. Yeah, And much. your choice of Jacob Myers or Chaz McCormick. And I, I really like Myers. I, I like him as a number nine hitter, you know, that kind of fast, contact-oriented guy who just seems to give teams fits from that position. Yeah. On top, I mean, the, the thing I think Houston does not obviously have going forward is a bullpen that is kind of eh, all the way around, with the yeah. exception of Ryan Presley. But that is less of an issue, I think, against Boston, whose bullpen is also very eh all the way around, with the exception of Whitlock. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, but I do just think offensively, it's, it's just how do you keep that offense down for at minimum four games? Right. Yeah. When you have when you have Kyle Tucker in the seventh spot, like, you know, the things are pretty strong top to bottom. So, yeah, I think that I agree. So then who do you have emerging for the emerging from the NL? Uh, I think I mean I'm I'm banking with the the folks in the lead. I think we do get Braves Giants because again two one is really hard to come back from. I have way yeah. more faith that the Dodgers can do it. Yeah. Than the Brewers can, especially because if the Dodgers do manage to win today tomorrow, today. I've, I've completely lost. Track. They play today. Yeah, they're the they're the nightcap. That's game right. Today. We- yeah. <laughs> I don't know it's what weird. day it is anymore. <laughs> You're getting thrown off because we have AL baseball today, which we were not supposed yeah. to have. So I think that's what's my, throwing my you internal, for a loop. My internal brain calendar has been reordered. But yeah. I do think the Dodgers are probably in the best position of either of those teams to come back, especially because if they do win game four, they have a fully rested Julio Rios in game five yeah. uh, ready to go, which would be really, really big for them. Whereas Milwaukee, I genuinely don't know what they plan on doing going forward. None of Woodruff, Burns, or Peralta can start this game. I believe they have... Who even is starting this game for Milwaukee? Eric Lauer. Eric Lauer, Lauer? okay. Lauer? 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 Roger. <laughs> <laughs> but even beyond like Burns and Woodruff and Peralta not being able to start, they're really not available for anything other than the most emergency of emergency relief outings. So if Craig Council gets through this, he's going to have to do it with the lesser parts of his rotation, the middle chunk of his bullpen, and as much Josh Hader as Josh Hader can provide. That's a really, really tough strategy, especially against a Braves team that is pretty, pretty good. And then they have to do it all over again in game five, although I guess at that point they would be bringing out either Burns or Woodruff or whoever it is on... on, I guess it would be Burns on on regular rest at that point, but... Right. But I I just... I think the Dodgers just have the better shot in game four to do something, especially because the Giants starter is Anthony DiSclefani, who, one, they already absolutely ripped to pieces earlier this season. And two, who is just not probably the weakest starter of anyone going in that series, which is no disrespect to Tony Disco, but just a re- a, a realistic reflection of how good these both these rotations actually are. And yeah, and it's also it is just the Dodgers. I have more faith in the Dodgers generally. I have more faith in the defending World Series champions than I do the the NL Central team. Really? Yeah. I controversial take. I, I'm I'm done believing in Central teams just generally. <laughs> 
Fair enough. But yeah, I, I, I think we're going to get a Giants-Braves series just because, again, they're, they're both up 2-1 and they're both in really good positions. Anytime you get two shots to move on as opposed to having to fight for your life both times, yeah, I think that's just much better. And then who who is our, what is our World Series matchup? I think it's Giants-Astros, oh boy. which would be, I don't know what to make of that matchup because yeah. there's no real narrative that it fits. Yeah. Which is not to say that every matchup needs a narrative, aside from us writers and editors who really like narratives because they make things so much easier. It does but it does make for a more satisfying game story. It does. But that that is just a matchup of just I mean, I, I just on a purely like baseball fan, that's just two really, really good teams. Yeah. And it's like it, that's almost one who cares? You don't need the narrative. You you don't need yeah. any narrative behind that. It's just two really good teams head to head for hopefully seven games. Yeah. Which well, and- I, I like yeah. the idea of, you know, like, I, I think that narratives emerge, right? Series tend to lend themselves to that. So I, I kind of like the idea of us being able to discover a new one. You know, Dodgers, Astros would certainly give its its own. I am not on the internet for even an, a pitch of that series. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Do you anticipate that the discourse will be bad about that, John? Oh, I can't the why the discourse around the Ryan, just the Ryan to Paris stuff, yeah, was gosh. already so bad that it just like I. It just reminded me, it's right. This is why beyond the whatever aesthetic stuff you have with it, and just whatever your rooting interest may be, this is why the Astros being in the postseason is now just completely exhausting, because it is the only thing anyone will talk about with them, and understandably so. Yeah. But yeah. it just, uh, yeah, it's, it's just too much. It's certainly something. It is it a lot. Way. It's a lot of something. Well, I am conscious of the time. There will be more Effectively Wild this week, so we'll be able to react to the actual uh, matchups for that later. But before we go, John, mm. I have to ask you a really, this is an upsetting question. This is, I can't believe I'm making you engage with this. Do you see this Broadway promo that MLB Network did? You see this <sighs> theater kid moment that, that baseball had? Why is there such a huge... Why is that pipeline so big, theater kid to baseball fan? Like, I've noticed that. There are a lot of, like... There are a lot of folks on baseball Twitter. I'm like, you were in a high school production of Our Town, weren't you? I was in a high school production of Our Town, John. Oh, see, I was that's a, what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I am, like, double trouble when it comes to, like, the worst possible kid to emerge from high school because I was both a theater kid and a debate kid. I was wow. both kinds of kid. And so I feel comfortable saying as a as a former theater kid, although I was not a musical theater kid because I cannot sing even a little bit. We don't need it. It's okay. We can no, move I mean, on from this. Who where what is the Venn diagram overlap of baseball fans and people who wanna who are fans of Christian Chenoweth? That that can't be that many people. Well, and it's just um, you know, for for folks who have not seen what we're referencing, um, because MLB Network did pull it down. <laughs> from Twitter. And look, we at Effectively Wild do not endorse bullying, but there are exceptions to every rule. So maybe that's what we saw here. But there was a, a promo for the, the ALDSs, Desi, the series. ALDSs. The AL Divisions series. Where four, four theater kids and, a, and I will say a very uh, talented pianist came together to sing a uh, musical tribute to these teams and it it did feature it did feature rapping you could not possibly put air quotes around rapping that are big enough it's yeah. not possible uh it it also <laughs> featured um it, it featured hands dancing 
hand dancing, you know, where where they're not really going to dance, but they're going to do hands. Yeah, jazz, jazz hands. hands. And uh, it was one of those things that like I was horrified to watch and then could not stop watching. I, I am I am not a musical theater person at all. I've done maybe two. I, I went to, weirdly enough, the one like one musical I have seen is Starlight Express, the Andrew Lloyd Webber one about trains, <laughs> which wow. is really one of the more bonkers productions you'll ever get the chance to watch if it ever, for some reason, escapes the subterranean jail that I imagine Andrew Lloyd Webber threw it into after its run on Broadway wow. was over. Yeah. Because even for him, that one is yeah, really, I was gonna say, really Andrew Lloyd Webber. There is some cheese associated yes. with that guy. And then yes. there is Starlight Express. Yes, that thing is craft singles all the way down. <laughs> but th- this the thing that just... It's not even so much that they chose this way to do it, which to me, it didn't even make full sense that, because it's like, if you're going to do a Broadway thing, why wouldn't you do that if it's something New York related? Right, there weren't, any, there weren't, there weren't even any New York teams. Like, right, there, they didn't... Nothing they didn't bust this out for for the wild card, you know. No, they and it's could like have at least made some pained Bronx references. No, no, featured no New York teams. I just find the concept of the baseball hype video that networks do so weird because weird. I'm not. I don't really know who it's supposed to be for. The the folks yeah. who were already planning on watching that game were going to do it regardless of whether or not you had uh, the guy you you contacted when Lin Manuel Miranda said no. Yeah, like they that doesn't they don't care. It does not matter to them literally what the hype video is because they're they're there just for the game. If you're yep. a hardcore fan, you're there. If you're a casual fan, what about that is enticing you to watch the baseball game coming? Yep. Like I, that's what I just don't get. Like I, I I don't have any ideas myself as to how Major League Baseball or MLB Network or whatever whatever network can do a better hype video because I I don't know. I don't really know how you hype baseball and do a hype video that isn't just guys pounding their chest after they make an outer hit a home run. There's just not a whole lot else baseball-wise you can really kind of dramatize in that sense. Yeah. And the ones where they have them just kind of staring into a camera, like holding a bat or like pretending they're pitching, or the even weirder one during the World Series we see where they just put them in the room with the commissioner's trophy and are just like, stare at this like it is the most important thing in your life right. and like you were in love with it and like you were going to marry it. I just find very strange too, especially because invariably there are guys there who have won at least one, if not multiple World Series. And you've got to imagine for them, especially, this is probably not all that crazy. Yeah. And they're also probably guys where it's like, I don't really care about this. Like, if we win, we, I mean, obviously they want to win, but it's like, right. I don't fetishize the commissioner's trophy or the concept of, you know, what, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's just very confusing to me why that existed. I get the sense that there's this constant push within the major league, within MLB's offices of we have to promote 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 and yeah of course they have to promote but they just choose the weirdest ways to go about it sometimes where you just wonder it's like either someone up in the league office just doesn't watch enough baseball and so is not really sure what exactly they're supposed to be promoting and so that's how something like Kristen Chenoweth singing about various cities happens or someone up there is super disconnected from popular culture at large yeah. Because that's kind of the other thing to me is like Broadway is not some aspects of Broadway are popular and are, are broadly popular, like the Hamilton stuff, which is why yeah. I imagine they had the rapping and whatnot. Yes. But Broadway itself is not really something that carries, I think, a whole lot of cachet beyond folks who are already into it. So yeah. I, I that's I don't really know who that was supposed to win over. Who is the casual fan who likes Broadway but isn't sure about this whole baseball thing? Well, and I think part of why I found it so funny was that because, you know, it, they only did they only did the MLB network games. And so there was no NL answer to this. <laughs> 
and I realize that that is a that is a a result of the of the broadcasts, right? Yes. MLB Network didn't do any NL games, right? Am I misremembering that? No, they uh-huh. only did. The, I mean, the only one I remember is Rays Red Sox. Everything else is as distant to me as the fall of Rome, and has been blended into a fine paste of of playoff baseball anyway. Let's but see. But I'm pretty sure that they only did that AL game. I mean, look, we're lucky. At least they didn't have Jim Cotton, Buck Walter singing. Oh man, yeah. Although maybe Jim Cott should have been singing, that probably would have been better than what he ended up saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, let's see. We had yeah, we had we had raised Red Sox, and then we had that that fateful broadcast of White Sox Astros, and then I think MLB Network exited the stage. So we didn't have an NL answer to this, and so I, I realized that they they just did it because MLB Network was like, this will be fun. But I like to imagine that someone representing the NL was like, oh, we're not doing that. Shit. <laughs> No, no. So we're, yeah, someone. Excuse, excuse me. We are uninterested in that particular uh, no, bit of nonsense. Go to no, hell with you. that. Yeah. It. I mean, it does. It does just all. Have, I mean, I like nonsense, and I, I like oh, the yeah. baseball. I like the Pro baseball races nonsense. I just wish that it would be a little more thoughtful about what nonsense it chooses, as opposed to being like, "You guys like Broadway, right?" Ninety percent of the audience going, "No, no, we no, no one asked for this. No one at all asked for this." There really is a desperately sweaty energy to the things Major League Baseball does sometimes where you just feel like they're trying so hard to convince you that this is a thing you actually want. Yes, yes, I think that that is a that is a good way to to put it and a good note to end things on. Um, Effectively wild, the desperately sweaty podcast. Sweaty energy. Yeah, here we are embracing our desperately sweaty energy. John, where can people find you on Twitter? At J A T A Y L E R my weird alternative spelling of Taylor. I will be mostly yelling about the Red Sox from this point forward. Although I've, and <laughs> I, I made this point on Twitter and now my replies are, are just Chernobyl, but <laughs> I made the point mostly joking, but serious, serious in the way that I think regular season rooting matchups and lifelong fandoms just create the need for pettiness mm-hmm. that no matter what happens to the Red Sox and the ALCS, they knocked out the Yankees and the Rays in the span of a week. The season is a complete success by that metric. <laughs> fandom, fandom, fandom is fun like that. It does stuff to us. It makes us. It makes us a version of ourselves. I'm not putting a value judgment on that version. I'm just saying it makes us a version of ourselves. We it find, does. We find and our version. So for me, I'll be I'll be yelling about the Red Sox, but I think. And again, like I said, spoiled child who gets a new toy. I've seen four titles in in the last seventeen years. I I don't need another one. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Is... Like I'm being very I'm being very generous here. Just, no, somebody else, please have this World Series title. <laughs> I know, and I know I'm talking to someone who literally hasn't seen one. So <laughs> no, no, and definitely didn't get to see one at a time when I could sort of like be a fan in an uncomplicated way. Which is the other part of it too, I think for for you and me and everyone else in baseball media that our fandom just gets really, really weird at a certain point. Yeah, and as I, I admitted uh, that when the, the Mariners were on their little run at the end of the season there and it looked like they might sneak in, like I felt, I felt a rekindling of fan feeling in a way that I had not felt in quite a while. And that was, that was fun. Although to sort of take us back around to the beginning of the episode, just wildly stressful. Like I- yes. And I wasn't even, you know, I would not consider myself in that moment to be sort of a full-throated, prepared to have my mood altered for the rest of the day in response to the outcome of the game kind of a fan. That wasn't the degree of fan feeling I was feeling. And even I felt very stressed on behalf of 
you know, Paul Seawalt. I was like, Paul, man, we're we're in it together. We're in a trench today. Yeah, you and I are you, pinky swearing. Yeah, you you and me, Paul. Yes. This is what we're doing. I get what you're saying because I, I I think I had something similar, like especially writing about baseball, like very very often. Just that vibe was like you can't really be a fan when you do that, but it also kind of blunts your fandom anyway because. Yeah. I think that's it when you expose yourself to more teams and to more play- and you just kind of like more teams and players yeah. because you're just like, oh, I just like this aesthetically. It yeah. just kind of, it does make your fandom, I think, a little less intense. But I felt like this series against both the wildcard game and the Yankees, which I think for obvious reasons, and, and the series against the Rays, where I kind of went into it going, I don't even know how excited I'm going to be about this. Like, right. I, I don't know if I care all that much. And then as both are happening, I'm like, oh, yes, this is the most important thing in the world right now. It took very little time for that to happen yeah. again. But I, I do especially think now that, at least for me, I do think that the pettiness of intradivisional stuff does make a later or does make a playoff exit to a non-division or non-AL East team that much more palatable. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be thrilled if the Red Sox lost the ALCS. I'm not going to say sure. I'd be like, I'm just going to wipe my hands and go, okay, fine. It's on to the whatever is next for whatever. But I, I don't think Celtics, I guess. I don't know. Let's go seize. But you could be a Kraken fan. You want to come hey. be a Seattle Kraken fan with me, John? Sure. That it's a cool name. I bet the two of us can name the exact same number of guys on that roster. There's a, there's got to be at least one it's like crap. Swedish dude, right? Well, if, I, if I say like sure. Johansson, that's a pretty good. Yeah. It feels it feels sure. like the equivalent of like I, I love that moment in Astros White Sox where Dusty Baker replaced Lurie or replaced uh, Luis Garcia with Yemi Garcia to pitch to Lurie Garcia. Garcia is all the way down. Garcia is all the way down, but yeah, the, the it's nice to have the fandom come back, even though Red Sox Astros will be. It's I mean, not nearly as insufferable as Astros Dodgers, but will also be a deeply unpleasant time on the internet. <laughs> Although well, I, I I am going to create a tweet deck column solely of Yankees fans just to watch them just contort themselves into ribbons or into knots over the course of that entire series just miserable the entire time i'm sorry to yankees fans but i'm really not <laughs> i suppose that the the upshot of having uh, a team like the mariners as your as your fan team is that when they do return to the postseason everyone who isn't a fan of the team they're playing is going to root for seattle if it had been a red sox mariners wild card game somehow which i think we could have gotten i think I we probably could have gotten yeah i probably would have been rooting for the mariners too like there, i think there is a certain point and like I said, the more you watch baseball that isn't just your team where you get to where it's like, I like my team, but there are also plenty of other things I like and plenty of other players sure. I like and plenty of other situations that are it's like, yeah, the team that hasn't been in the playoffs since literally 2001 and just got here by kind of sheer plucky scrap and, yep. you know, fun differential. Hell yeah. Let's let's do a Mariners Tober. Mariners Tober. Well, yeah, that was Seattle's downfall. They never came up with a catchy name for October. Ah. Uh. Well, they they might have a while to work on it still. So I look forward to being able to root for whatever the catchy version of Mariner's Tober is. We will have you back on Effectively Wild before such an eventuality because we won't make people wait that long. But uh, John, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me do my Effectively Wild debut. That wasn't no. good English, but it's a have podcast. You? It doesn't have to be. No, yeah. I've done I've done Fangraphs audio with you. I guess that's right. And also with Eric in another in another time. I guess for that's a different right. Thing. Well, but this is my first time on Effectively Wild, so Effectively Wild Facebook group that I don't read, uh, please go easy on me. I'm not going to read your, your criticism or comments anyway, so if you have, an, if you have thoughts you want to send to me directly, uh, you can tweet them at Grant Brisby. That's G-R-A-N-T-B-R-I-S-B-E-E. Just let them know, or sorry, let me as Grant Brisby, because that's who I am, uh, let me know how I did, please, and thank you. 
That'll do it for today. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, keep us ad-free, and get access to a few special perks. Lynn B., Josh Hahn, Anna Creech, Ryan Deal, and Justine Dakotas. Thanks so much. Speaking of perks, if you're a supporter at the $10 a month and up level, one of your supporter benefits is access to two Patreon-exclusive postseason live streams, featuring me, possibly Ben, and several of our baseball friends. The first of those streams is going to take place this Sunday, October 17th, for Game 2 of the NLCS. You'll find details in your Patreon inbox soon, so keep an eye out for that. And if you'd like to join us and aren't currently a supporter or are a supporter but not for $10 a month or more, don't worry, there's still time to sign up. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectivelywild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for us coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I'll be back later this week with new guest co-hosts and new episodes. Until then, enjoy the playoffs. Broadway, the contracts are signed. Open the door. And what do you find? It's a bomb. With some drops, you'll find new friends. But not your props. Nothing has changed, but there's one thing you know. Now you're in a brawl. Broadway